Hello, this is uh, this is Everyday Anarchism, um, and my guest today is John Raymond, and we are here talking about his new book, Denial. Um, welcome to the podcast, John. Thank you so much for having me. Do you want to start um, before we start discussing with a, a blurb, uh, your, your author spiel of what denial is? Uh, the sure, book, I, not just I, the, yes, not just yes, the concept. Exactly. Yeah, I live it every day. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, absolutely. It's it's uh, a pleasingly simple premise. Uh, it's the the year is uh, 2052, 30 years in the future. Um, the world has undergone a global Green New Deal that uh, has has altered, but not entirely transformed uh, society as we know it. Um, it has allowed humanity to avoid some of the worst um, uh, uh, consequences of climate change, uh, at least for the time being. But it has left a lot of the day-to-day -day, uh, life of, of uh, you know, shopping and eating and <laughs> meeting your friends uh, intact. Um, part of those, uh, part of the uh, Green New Deal, which uh, were called the uprisings, uh, it was a, a time of like very enormous uh, change within a small period of time. And part of that uh, process were some uh, Nuremberg style trials of prominent carbon criminals. So, uh, you know, executives at oil companies and people like that were, uh, were put on trial and, and held responsible for the crimes of their um, of their uh, corporations. Uh, some of those uh, people escaped, however, and so this story is about a journalist named uh, Jack uh, who discovers one of those uh, climate criminals in hiding in Mexico and proceeds to um, find him and attempt to unmask him. Um, it's, you know, kind of a, a Nazi hunter story in like ecological drag in a certain way um and yeah is a a thriller of sorts yeah okay thanks for that i mean i i will say i mean and this gets back i, I was talking to you before we started recording about how I, I learned about this from a piece that you wrote for lit hub about like science fiction for people who don't like science fiction i have some objections to that which we may or may not get to but i'll i'll, I'll stick with this idea of genre which is like I mean, this is this is a tricky book. It's it's a beautifully written book. I really admired it a lot. I really enjoyed writing it. The 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 prose is excellent. Which since I knew you primarily through your film work, I mean that's something I'm always scared of. When I pick up a book from someone who I haven't you know read their prose, I'm like, ooh, am I? Mm -hmm. You know, I'm not going to name any of the screenwriters <laughs> who write great scripts but write terrible prose. But you are not one of them. Thank you. Um, I I aim not to be. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Well, it's it's very clear that you're that you're a novelist and a good one. Um, but it's it's also this. I mean, this book in some ways. There's someone I think it might be Michael Chabon, who is always ranting about the the lack of respect given to every genre besides you know middle brow fiction stories and this is a book that is fits quite well with the works of Alice Munro or John Cheever or, who, or whoever you want in that literary fiction mode that is also a Nuremberg story and a Nazi hunting story and an eco-catastrophe story. And I, I don't 
think people pull that off that well that often. So I wanted to see how, I mean, did you have that in your mind, that challenge when you were writing it? Yeah, I mean, um, yeah, boy, there's a few things in there. Um, uh, yes, I'm familiar with the Shabon argument about, uh, you know, the, the sort of ghettoization of genre fiction. Um, and it's funny, I mean, I feel like that, that defense of genre fiction to me has been like prevalent enough over the last few decades between, you know, him and Jonathan Leatham and like mm -hmm. a lot of the McSweeney's people. And like, it's, it's uh, a definite um, discourse that's out there um, to the point where I, at this point have become really defensive about like naturalist fiction and realist fiction, which to me at this point has become the sort of ghettoized thing where it's like someone has to stand up for like character-based sort of, um, you know, uh, epiphany-centric, uh, like uh, miniaturist sort of uh, uh, fiction. And so, um, you know, because to me that is like actually what I enjoy the most, and which I respond to the most, like, uh, I mean, you know, I wish that this was uh, could touch the hem of of Alice Munro. I mean, that is to me the the gold standard of what fiction should be. You know, yeah, I would um, just break in and say yes. I mean, is, of course, has yeah. anyone ever written yeah. better fiction in that style than Alice Munro? I can't say off the top of my head. Yeah, anyone. I mean, I would put Mavis Gallant like very mm. close, but they are you know that's like of a echelon that is like you're just like I don't even understand how this happens this is too too much but like for me so that said okay like yeah Mavis Gallant and Alice Monroe live in a certain world I am you know not able to understand how to fabricate that kind of thing and so just on a really practical level genre is really important to me because genre does sort of give you a certain pattern to work with and it allows you you know certain uh, um, spaces to fill and, and just a, a vibe to understand. And so really in a lot of the things that I've done, there is some, some version of a genre that is being written usually sort of against in some kind of way, but it's, it's there to help understand like how to structure something. And so, you know, for this one, it is like a, a climate catastrophe thing in a certain sense. Um, but I think really what it is is, uh, kind of a, a noir novel you know I mean it, I think it's 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 probably fits the most less like in a Alice Monroe world than in like a James Kane or a Graham Greene kind of world oh yeah that's interesting I mean I thought of John McCarry actually when I was reading it but it's, in, you know, uh, it's still in that yeah in that zone what you're best known for what I knew you were best for was the screenplays you've written with the filmmaker Kelly Reichardt and very much some of the most famous ones, Meek's Cutoff and especially First Cow are thought of, or I would think of them as Western slash pioneer story. And then what, what people have been calling since at least the sixties, revisionist Westerns. And so if this, in this sense, this could be seen as a revisionist post-apocalyptic yeah. novel. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the revisionist Western uh, of those, of those films, like it, it does feel like to me related to the sort of revisionist post-apocalyptic genre that I guess I was thinking about here. And um, I mean, yeah, going back to, you know, sort of what I was saying about genre providing some sort of, um, you know, 
guiding uh, structure or pattern to a particular thing. I mean, I'm sure there are many literary critics who have like talked about the kind of bond between genre and ideology, you know, that they are kind of structures of feeling in a certain sense. Uh, I feel like the same definition can apply to both of those those words. Um, and I think, yeah, it's, it's really obvious that the traditional classic Western um, has an ideology that is, you know, uh, imperialist and uh, patriarchal and, you know, to me personally objectionable on a lot of levels, you know. Um, and so those films, uh, yeah, Meek's Cutoff, you know, is, is very much a kind of 45 degree, like, intersection with a traditional Western in a sense. And I would say First Cow is like almost a 180 degree like, <laughs> kind of reversal of a lot of those tropes. And those, uh, you know, and, and, you know, but but those sort of traditional uh, Western genre signposts did offer a lot of, you know, help in figuring out how those stories could unfold. And so, you know, in a similar way, yeah, I, I have it turns out like an ideological beef with uh, a dystopian and, and post-apocalyptic post -apocalyptic literature as it has evolved to our current dystopian and post-apocalyptic society. And, you know, that was a lot of the motivation for doing this book in the first place. Okay, so at this point, I think I need to I need to just say to the the listener, you have not accidentally wandered into a, a literature podcast. I mean, I but I have been a literature professor all along. I've just been I've just been hiding it. Um, and the the reason why this book struck me as so interesting is well, for one thing, as I've talked to people over the course of this podcast, um, especially the people who are a little more adjacent and accepting of whatever you want to say the mainstream political system as opposed to the more uh, some of the more extreme anarchists that i've talked to there's just mm -hmm. been this sense that um the system has to be maintained the, the the system whatever you want to call it capitalism government everything because it's what feeds and and clothes us and then there's also the sense that it that the same system is the one that is that is destroying the world. And when you look at the history of the environmental movement, it intersects with the history of anarchism over and over and over again. And then your book, and this is where, you know, we can maybe move away from literature and also to a certain extent away from the narrative of the of the novel, because I'm interested, and this is the classic science fiction move, it yeah. was called, you know, somewhat unpretentiously, quote, world building, the yeah. apocalypse. Yeah. that happened or didn't happen and of course the uprising that has solidarity what a what a great yeah. you know anarchist term at the at the heart of it yes um well i mean i'll just uh yeah i'm not sure exactly the uh what you what the the question there There's, is i mean I, I didn't, I didn't I have, get to a question but just yeah, say whatever you want um, in response yeah. well what i'll say in response is that um you know the book denial as the title will indicate is premised on many different forms of denial, like numerous of the characters live in differing states of denial. And there's barely a scene in the book that is not structured around some kind of unspoken, um, uh, like dissembling of some kind. Um, but, uh, but I would say the most profound sort of denial structuring this book is my own denial 
as far as like understanding how the world will in 30 years resemble a like sort of normalized place mm. and like you know the world building is is vague in this book for that exact reason because there's a, a massive question mark i have in how we get from this place to that place um without you know much more radical changes than are evident in this book so um you know i hope that there's a yeah like a, a meta denial in here and and i'll just say my my like rationale for the, sorry i'm just like i obviously got a lot of shit to say about this but um exactly all right here i go um i feel like i have witnessed like you could call it denial or you could also call it a kind of magical thinking in a sense and you know i have seen or we have all seen the um really uh disgusting ways in which um uh magical thinking has warped our society and the kind of like refusal of facts and the refusal of like common decency in a certain sense um and how really effective a certain form of yeah just delusional sort of enunciation is and so for me i was like why can't we do that from the other side i'm just gonna pretend i'm just gonna close my eyes and pretend like we can get to this particular place and like hopefully reality will organize itself in our wake yeah well it does it, 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 <laughs> you don't go into it in depth but it is clear what what do they call it the upheaval it's clear that there's, the a, there's a yeah. yeah there's a grassroots yeah response which you know ever since Ever since environmental awareness became relatively mainstream, you could say in the 60s, people yeah. have been waiting for yeah. the yeah. upheaval. And mm -hmm. uh, we see, we seem to still be be waiting. Um, yeah. And I'm, I suppose I'm not optimistic that the upheaval is coming, but I'm no. very frustrated with the people who suggest it's not needed. Who are like, well, if we yeah, can just right. get carbon capture technology going, everything will be fun. It's like, yes, I'm pessimistic about the uprising, but yeah. God damn it, what's the other alternative? Totally, no. I mean, it's like, I mean, to me, that was the point of this. It's like, I just need to find a way to think about this stuff in some way, you know, because there's just too much cognitive dissonance to like be living in an emergency all the time, pretending like nothing is going on, but also to... Uh, yeah, I mean, it's just how do you how do you even conceive of a of a future horizon? You know, I mean, that's it's it's become really really difficult. So, I feel like yeah, for me, this book was sort of a a step in that direction. Like, I don't really like know what it what it augurs like action wise. Um, yeah. Well, you can come back on in thirty years. Yeah, we exactly. Can we can update. Got, right. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> right. But I mean, it's very, I mean, another thing that fascinated me from, from my political angle reading this book is very early on, um, the protagonist encounters, you know, the, the young punks who think they're, who think they're a legacy of the upheaval, but don't actually remember the upheaval. And the protagonist thinks, you know, every revolution becomes bureaucracy and, and they haven't figured that out yet. Yeah, right. And, and, and that's a successful uh, revolution, yeah. you know? I mean, it's like most of them don't even go that far. Yeah. But the, but the best case scenario is you've got this, it's called yeah. the upheaval and it's the, you know, solidarity with air, solidarity with trees. And then the next thing you know, you've got a huge court case which is you know very un-anarchistic and says yeah yeah let's assign blame to certain people 
and then we're and then we're good because we you know we yeah. assign some blame and then we can just move forward yeah. and I, I must admit this is disappointing to me in terms of the world <laughs> yeah. I, was, I was i mean i guess the alternative this is denial again is to assign blame where it belongs which is to all of us ourselves yeah right yeah. exactly which i yeah is good um, i mean i mean that's the that's the rat or that's the complaint about you know alice monroe and realist fiction is that it by just merely describing the world as it is like you are not um envisioning a sort of better and you know more just sort of society um and that that is you know politically uh unsavory in some kind of way um but i yeah being like a, at heart a very practical person i'm like i just don't really see the point of imagining a world in which you pretend that like human nature isn't what it is and you pretend like um you know mass movements don't have the lifespans that they do and you know I, like it's it's uh um time to let's see how does the song go all along the watchtower the hours getting like yeah let us not talk falsely now the hour is getting late like we need to like uh get down to some brass tacks yeah when i had uh kim stanley robinson on the show he was like you know I, this pains me to say as an old hippie leftist, but we need some sort of Keynesian government in, intervention like this. Yeah, whatever, yeah. Whatever it was that we totally, were dreaming yeah. of. Totally. <laughs> no, I mean, and and happily, I had not read the Ministry for the Future before I wrote this book, um, because that, you know, would have would have made it even more evident just sort of how shallowly fantastical my own sort of premises that you know these upheavals could be achieved in this kind of time period and with this little seeming kind of ramification but um but um but yeah i mean I, he's he's such a really incredible thinker i think and so inspiring on a lot of levels and it's true i mean at this point i feel like you know neoliberalism is going to be the best fucking thing anyone ever saw uh <laughs> compared to <laughs> compared to either to fascism or towards whatever like hobbesian fucking cannibal state you know total cultural decline will be so yeah, well, i yeah. mean i suppose the alternative is like live on a co-op farm or blow up dams or something like that and that's i mean you can see that i'm that, that that's, <laughs> yeah, that's right. not the route that i right that i am taking although certainly yeah you know that's well then that's, that's that was one of our movies was yeah I know. Night movies, which, yeah yeah right <laughs> I, you know it's, it's... And which i got into trouble with with anarchists because they were like an anarchist would never uh like uh commit homicide you know like there's no possible way that an anarchist would ever stoop to that kind of level and in, in my and and it was actually a really fun conversation i had with a, like a you know an anarchist sort of interviewer um that uh you know yeah became kind of not not like heated because we were both really polite people but it's like in my mind i'm like you never know what someone's gonna do and like they're definitely you can't really say blanketly that like anyone espousing <laughs> anarchist ideals will not like turn out to be have bad judgments at certain times you know it is just humans yeah I mean, that's also uh, a, a really strong um, denial, let's say, of the history of the anarchist movement, which yeah. has its yeah has its pacifist side, and that's the side I am more interested yeah. in. I mean, you can say, I mean, this is you know, wrote to listeners of the show, but you know, King Thoreau, Gandhi, 
this is a form of anarchism, but you know, assassination is also a form of anarchism. And yes, yeah. I, I agree. There's something incompatible with violence and anarchism, but that's rarely the exclusive totally. position exactly. of the anarchists. <laughs> yeah. Violence is completely incompatible with yeah. anarchism. Yeah. Well, I mean, even Ministry for the Future is so interesting on that level. You know, I mean, to me, I found the black ops in that book the most fascinating. I mean, just because literarily they're kind of the most juicy you know when you have people um you know assassinating and and blowing up infrastructure and stuff but uh but he keeps it really politely off stage you know <laughs> it's funny like there's a kind of decency to the book that doesn't seem to really want to explore that part but that seems to also believe that it's a necessary part of whatever rescue mission is going to happen yeah the example i haven't talked about this in on this podcast yet, but the example I always use with my students is uh, the film, not so much the comic book, but the film V for Vendetta, which um, suggests that we need, you know, anarchism to save us. And it ends up a completely fascist film. It ends up with this huge movement that comes at night with fire and a big leader and destroys things. And that's, that's the danger is when you go down and that kind of yeah and, and that's like the movie where those guy fox masks came from right yeah yeah which i have always found so ridiculous it's just like seriously this is the occupy like like mask is just fucking like thing built by some pr department at a hollywood like studio like i just always i've found those guy fox masks so annoying <laughs> yeah it's well it's 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 fa it's fascistic it's a worship yeah. of it's a worship of totally. violence and you know you know hitler didn't say i am evil hitler said i am i am you and your power flows through me and i will smash the evil institutions and that's exactly <laughs> that's yeah. that's fascism yeah and you know no, there no are one, people... yeah no one i've yet to encounter anyone who calls themselves a fascist really i mean although i guess they almost do i guess the proud boys come pretty close to that um, but yeah, it's like, this is, you know, the, there is, there is a left wing, a left wing version of this. I mean, the, the anarchist old enemy, of course, is the left wing bureaucrats, but then there's also yeah. the like, man, you guys seem really into violence oh, and, yeah. well, and authority in a certain way. Totally. Yeah. I mean, uh, I mean, yeah. Living in Portland, you know, um, <laughs> yes, <laughs> this is not a, that. yeah, this is not, uh, uh, this is actually a very like uh, immediate and concrete kind of question, you know, and definitely living through 2020 here. Um, there's just no, there's no question that there is not, I mean, you could call it a fascist wing of Antifa, or you could call it probably more accurately like a Khmer Rouge sort of wing of, of Antifa. But um, watching the street fights go on, you know, for a hundred and plus nights here um, and and people within the Antifa faction doing things like smashing into the Oregon Historical Society and trashing like stuff inside the Historical Society or just, you know, stupidly just smashing a bunch of small businesses like windows all the time. And like there was no it, it clearly is like, yeah, whether or not it's like, you know, ideological or not, it's just a kind of, uh, um, you know, it's 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 basically like a testosterone thing you know i mean it's like it's just like a you're you're practically as big of an assholes as those guys coming in in their trucks with their banners 
But yeah, that said, yeah. that's a that's a sliver of of mm -hmm. the greater Antifa thing because there's also that part of me that's like, yeah, you you fight fascism on the street before it actually enters the like state, you know, and like that is, I I'm really grateful to a lot of the like Antifa people. I made air quotes there that you won't hear on the <laughs> yeah, you won't hear on the radio. Podcast, yeah, exactly. Yeah, um, whatever. Call it Antifa. Call it whatever. But like. There is a part of me that's like I am. I'm grateful that a lot of people were standing up and confronting what are um, not even proto-fascist, but actually just mm -hmm. full-on fascist sort of uh, um, gatherings in our city. Like that's that's fucked up. Yeah, I'm a I'm a big fan of the Catalan uh, architect Gaudi, and I'm also yeah. a big fan of the Spanish uh, Revolution that that became the Spanish Civil War. And but when you go uh to uh, Sagrada Familia they're like oh yeah we don't have we don't have his plan it's very sad we don't have his plan it was burned that's all it says it was burned as mm -hmm. you know reading later the anarchists burned it because it was you know it was a catholic it was a yeah. catholic building so they were striking yeah. against the man and I just you know here in 2022 it'll be like guys couldn't you have like I'm okay with you burning a lot of the Catholic documents <laughs> but couldn't you have left that one it's a, totally you know, it's so beautiful but you don't you don't really get to pick and pick and choose when you start writing yeah. the yeah. writing the lightning of the upheavals exactly yeah yeah i mean it's i feel like yeah we have entered a very precarious time where like um these these kinds of uh ideological um sort of nuances are like really important because people can like go down some really um i mean to me wrong-headed sorts of avenues by being imprecise and you know by being uh hyperbolic and by you know yeah exactly like just embracing that sort of momentum that is is not really smart yeah i i would love to have you back on the show sometime to talk about your films i guess i am going to briefly mention a scene in in night moves where um i just rewatched it in anticipation of talking to you and I was like, make sure you remember the best anarchist film, but you know, focus on denial. But there's there's a moment where uh, the Jesse Eisenberg character has has committed this bombing and he works in this kind of co-op farm and the, 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 the man who runs the farm is like, you know, get out of here. And Jesse Eisenberg says something along the lines of, I'm sorry, I'm paraphrasing, like, yeah, we, you know, we've got to make a difference or something. And the guy's like, gestures towards the farm is like that, I am making a difference. Yeah, asshole. yeah, like yeah, yeah. Like getting no. off the grid and farming. Yes. Enough no, I mean, do that. Yeah, no, that to me was the sort of like kernel of, I mean, that was the, the ideological argument that I felt like I was trying to stage there is like, yeah, you've got the, uh, the, the sort of direct action model on this side. And then, which is, you know, fundamentally negative. I mean, it is like negating and it's like destroying and which I understand. I mean, that is like a, a feeling I totally feel. Um, but then, yeah, you have then a more creative path, which is like creating something and actually like, you know, investing in the future in a way. The really sad, horrible uh, uh, postscript to that is that um, that film was shot at some friend of ours, uh, Organic Farm in Southern Oregon. Um, they built this incredible, um, uh, um, farm in the Siskiyou mountains there where uh they you know farm almost entirely with like trapped water it's like almost sort of mm -hmm. zero footprint um uh largely a organic seed farm 
built a beautiful like cob house. It's all there depicted in the film. Um, they are now having to sell the farm because of uh, climate change yeah. and because of desertification of that place. Yeah. There's just not been enough water. And so that whole beautiful world that they created there, which is embedded in this place, the Applegate Valley, that is like one of the most politically complex and interesting neighborhoods I've ever encountered. Cause it's like anarchists on one side and Ron Paul, uh, you know, libertarians <laughs> on the other, like living basically the same life, but like having like totally different kinds of like worldviews, but like all sort of like just right there. And like, it's really, it's so fascinating, but yeah, like sadly now it's just like, yeah, not, not possible. Damn, I think you're talking me into blowing things up. Like, cause that's because I was like, that's what <laughs> yeah. I took away from that film is like, don't blow up the stuff. Build, yeah. build yeah. the utopia you want to live yeah. in. But then, you know, yeah. because some assholes somewhere else are, you know, fracking, the the utopia gets destroyed. Whoops. That's not yeah. usually the ethos I go for on this show. But I <laughs> yeah. just I just advocate the <laughs> yeah. the bombing of industrial civilization. I didn't yeah. mean to. Yeah, well, you can't help but want to, you know. I mean <laughs> That was what I found like interesting with that film is it's like, you know, the reception was like a little mixed in some ways. And I realized at a certain point, I'm like, to sort of understand this film, you have to go in with the premise that you want to blow up the industrial infrastructure, you know? And if you don't have that as a basic sort of concept, then a lot of it might not really make entire sense to you. Yeah, I started my very second episode, I think of this entire podcast was about Tolkien because he very much wanted to blow up industrial infrastructure. Yeah, if you right. don't like when you're when they when they destroy Isengard, like oh, that's, that's not like that's a fantasy yeah. for Tolkien. And it was a fantasy that he 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 wanted to blow up yeah. the dams also. And if you don't yeah. if you don't want that, yeah. Then there's something dead in you. I mean, there's something, yeah. you know, and I mean, yeah, totally. Yeah. Okay, I wanted to, I wanted to, there's a chunk, I mean, I marked a ton of chunk. Again, I'm a literature professor going through books and, <laughs> and underlining and scribbling things is what I do, but there was one chunk I wanted to read if I can find it. So it's when two characters, I think I'm not going to, for spoiler reasons, reveal who the two characters are exactly, but they're discussing okay. these, these Nuremberg trials, which again, I'm suggesting is a sort of like very top-down bureaucratic response to what clearly started as a as a bottom-up upheaval yeah and then you get let's see um so there's a character there that was that was the book rustling of a physical book for those of you at home <laughs> um this person says uh this person who is justifying the i guess i'll read the person who is attacking it says Hanging Jared Curtis, life imprisonment for Bowen. Those were some very severe sentences for guys who didn't actually kill anyone. They were just executives, bureaucrats. So it was Goering, he said. This is the person speaking back. So it was Himmler. The Toronto gang killed whole phylums. Someone had to be held accountable for all that carnage. That's how justice works. We choose someone and make an example so we know the limits. Those people stood for many. Someone had to be the representative. And a little further down, he goes on, the system as a whole is at fault. But as a species, we had to make a statement. We had to draw a line. This seems to be really important for this moment. It's also an important way of understanding 
it seems like the justice system as as it exists is like the mm -hmm. if when you drill down with people the justice system doesn't really work it's like well yeah but we've got to like we've got to show what we believe in and we've got to show it with some form of bureaucratized violence and when you <laughs> and when you try to imagine an alternative world i will admit most of us fail to i was talking to a friend who said yeah like when you when you read about police corruption, your response is to say, "Yeah, those those guys should be in jail." Because you just yeah, right, like, exactly. You totally. just That's can't right. imagine. Yeah. Exactly. And yeah. and this is a yeah. world in which people have imagined a different way, and yet in some ways cannot imagine yeah. a different yeah. way. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, again, like this argument is not theoretical in Portland at this point right now, you know, and it's like that has been a really like incredible and fascinating like uh, uh community process to go through as like you start seeing you know big huge nice four square uh you know craftsman bungalow houses and posh neighborhoods um with big huge fuck the police defund the police <laughs> signs on them you know <laughs> and it's like whoa that you're the people the police are protecting like that's crazy you know and um you know but at the same time, uh, you know, I mean, the police were not defunded here, um, but there was enough of a, a, you know, to do or whatever around it that um, the police have sort of stopped working. You know, I mean, they all like got all their asses bent out of shape and are fundamentally like not policing at this point. And shootings have gone up 200% here, you know, I mean, it's like it is and and our city is is really dysfunctional. Um, I mean, I've stopped I mean, this is a different but related issue. Like I've stopped telling my kids that like shanty towns are not normal, you know, yeah. that like, it, it's not they don't really fully. I don't think they can believe me that like I grew up in a town where we did not have uh, shanty towns or ranting like drug addicts um, all over the place, you know? And like, um, you know, yeah, like it or not, like uh, a state is sort of necessary in order to maintain some level of social order, you know? And it's, it's or, I mean, an ugly, it, yeah. Yeah, to put it in a more optimistic way, you can't yeah. just, you can't just pick what you think is the worst part of a state, yeah, remove right. it. And leave every place like yeah yeah, we yeah could, right we could live a different way i don't know how to get there yeah i can tell you I what mean, i wouldn't do is just right. remove the police from the streets and leave everything else leave the it. same exactly right or nor would i just like try to sweep a bunch of people out of their shanty towns without right. giving them any kind of like uh wraparound services as they call it you know which is what's going on right now and it's like that's also pointless i mean i was talking to someone last night who lives who actually lives in Barcelona, actually, um, speaking of Gaudi. Um, and uh, she's American, but like is not moving and has a kid who's five years old and would kind of like to move back to the United States, but like is like, but I have health insurance here. I don't need to yeah. uh, worry about my kid's college education. Like, why would I move back, you know? And like, you know, you look at, you know, Western Europe in a lot of ways. And yeah, although the some people, all that socialism it's yeah. like no that's just like uh fucking states with social safety nets and that have like invested in their own fucking future 
Yeah, I mean, this is a bit of a, this is a cliche, but I guess I can say it anyways. It is like, this is the classic, <laughs> the classic irony that it's like the people who, who most want the police on the streets are the same people who have constructed the system that has put people on the streets. And then they say, see, this is why we need police. And it's like, well, that's, yeah, yeah. No, you've right. got it exactly Although, backwards. Right. Yeah, right. Although to be fair, there are plenty of people in East Portland right now who would like more police on their streets yeah. because like their kids are getting shot. You know, I mean, it's like, it's not, you know, there are some very basic, not basic, there's some grassroots people who are like, we need to do something about this. And it's, you know, it's going to, sadly take the force of the state to do it yeah i mean that's what that's what yeah. happens when you create a state and the state says no one <laughs> no one else gets to do anything yeah. and then the activists for as we've discussed very very good reasons you know go against that arm of the state it's like you're not gonna... yeah. Any, anyone who thought some sort of anarcho-communist society was just going to spring up Yes. Uh, a sur even despite surrounded by everything else and in this corporate capitalist world, just because you removed the police. I'm much yeah. more interested yeah. in totally. something like cahoots. Is that Portland? I'm sorry, I get Portland and Seattle. Cahoots. Cahoots. I don't know. Oh, so, oh, uh, tell me more. No, that's not Portland. But okay, so cahoots is um, it's it's somewhere up there in that, you know, mm -hmm. Uh, socialist commune you guys yeah. call the Pacific Northwest, which <laughs> yeah. is, you know, it's it's first, it's mental health first responders who, if someone calls 911 and yeah. someone is behaving erratically, they come with, you know, a blanket and yeah. some water and the phone number of a homeless shelter instead of guns. That's not totally. eliminating the state. It totally. might yeah, right. move us towards right. a exactly. less militarized state, which might move us towards less of a state, but like, let's, let's do that and yes that exactly. involves working within the system but you can if you want to this scholar ruth kenna calls this anarchizing you know let's anarchize yes, the right. systems we are exactly. in rather than just think you can sweep them away it doesn't work exactly. that way totally totally no i mean in watching like again going back to the um the you know tiny vanguard of of antifa that would like smash into the uh historical society and write write like end history you know on you know graffiti that all over the place um like i get yeah and and yeah imagine there's going to be some year zero where you suddenly have this like new new society um i mean i'll just say partly it's as a writer that i think about this stuff and like i understand like revision is a process where things change radically with like many small changes all over the place, but you keep the basic text in place, you know, and you sort of continually move it into a sort of better and more legible version. And like that just ends up making sense to me as a kind of mm -hmm. political process, you know, like we're, you know, which sounds like very Obamaist sort of, uh, you know, gradualist sort of mentality. Um, but I feel like we have the entire 20th century to look at as far as like the other options and they don't look that good. You know, I mean, Stalin and Mao were not, not happy social experiments and there's no, no reason to think that we're that much wiser. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, that's why, I mean, that's why I call this show everyday anarchism because exactly, the idea yeah. is that you can do this, <laughs> yeah. you can do this in your day-to-day -day life and eventually you yeah. will get that utopia, but God, if you are waiting for the dear leader, whether that dear leader is totally. democratically elected or not, yeah, to, you know, or if you think you can just smash the leader yeah. and what you're going to get in return, that's, that's, 
that yeah. that's not going to work. Although again, if the farms that if the if the anarcho communist yeah. co-op farms themselves are dying, I then I don't, yeah. <laughs> totally. I don't know. I'm no, back I mean, to that. Totally. I mean it's a really it's a tricky thing to comprehend. Like I mean, I find myself you know, looking at, you know, the Republican Party, which I think at this point is is an openly fascist party. There's no there's no question about it. Um, and and realizing that, OK, they you know, these are people who have lost faith in democracy because they you know can't convince enough people to do what they want to do. And they thus have like, you know, pursued these more authoritarian uh, sort of uh, tactics. And, you know, I'm like, you bad people, like, I don't want to, you know, you're, you're so terrible that way. But then there's a part of me that's like, but if there was like a left wing dictator that I could install in a certain <laughs> way, because I'm like, we need to make some like very like crucial social changes. And there is, you know, 47% of the country that is really in the way. And we need to somehow marginalize in a, in a really profound way in the way that you marginalize a six-year-old from the dinner party you know like you don't talk to these people because they're not really worth dealing with and yet we can't just get rid of them you know they're going to be there like how do you how do you square that with like a belief in democracy i don't know yeah i mean look this is this is the kind of question that i that, that i struggle with every time i have someone on this podcast and this and this issue comes yeah. up and especially Climate change makes the idea of of anarchizing or democratizing everything. I mean, I think this is where Stan Robinson ended up. Is like, shit, we've got to do something yeah. now, and whatever levers of power there are, we have to pull them now, yes. now, now, yeah. now, because the upheavals don't. I mean, I got excited about Extinction Rebellion in London, like they shut the city down, and yeah. people's response was. Why are these asshole eco terrorists shutting the city down? So that's like you know sh clearly shutting the world down with protests is not going it's not to the, open it's, people's eyes. It's, it's not, not the way to it's not the way to win hearts and minds. No, it's not. Um, I mean that's why I'm I'm so stoked about this you know uh, Biden bill you know the um, <laughs> the fighting inflation <laughs> act or whatever the fuck they're calling it. Um, but like you know it is a radically imperfect kind of uh bill uh but it's at least moving in the right direction you know and it is something that you can build on you know assuming it's not totally dismantled by uh you know republican congress but uh it is uh you know worth celebrating i think that's like a real real thing yeah and fail failing a mass upheaval that's that's what we've got and look i mean i haven't generated a mass upheaval so it's <laughs> it's time it's time <laughs> To let the legislature do it, yeah. We, you know, I I like yeah. to think that if we'd made better choices fifty years ago, we wouldn't be in this state. But you know, those people, those people got a mass of people. They got a mass of people against the Vietnam War and against certain forms of racial segregation, and then yes. they got thirty years of backlash. So yeah, you yeah, know, like, totally. Yeah, I mean, uh, I'd say fifty at this point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So that's, yeah. so that's, you know, that's again, you know, like yeah. just, I'm really enjoying this conversation. I keep walking myself into positions. I don't uh, No, I don't It's really like to. when you get really practical, it's like it, the, the really boring truth is it's like, yeah, vote for vote Democrat, you know, like organize for the democratic party, you know, and it's, it's like incredibly unsexy, but it is um, sadly like, 
I mean, I, you know, the joy, I mean, it's just so fucking crazy to me that like at this point I'm pro FBI, pro CIA, like, you know, the idea, <laughs> the idea of like sedition against the United States government is like abhorrent to me, you know, I mean, that's not the person I was when I was a teenager, you know, that's not the kid reading about Cell Pro, that is like um, the world, but the world has gone through this funhouse mirror and it's like at this point, yeah, I'm like a fucking law and order Democrat. Yeah, I'm. I'm still holding on. I'm, I'm, I'm very much on uh, on a pox on both their houses. And like, if FBI and Trump want to like fall fall into the ocean like Godzilla style, and they both die like wrapped around one another, I'm I'm, I'm fine with that. If, if I have to pick one, sure, I can't let really say this. I'll take the FBI over. Yeah, right. For actual fascists. Yes, but exactly. I, I, yeah, exactly. I at least never made the mistake. One of my one of my buddies had a uh, a picture of of Mueller in in his office, like you know, again a good a good left wing guy, but it was like, yeah. yeah, go FBI, and then when the FBI did what it always does, which is you know not the right thing, <laughs> yeah. Mueller ended up in the trash can. I was like, yeah, I could I could have told you that was going to yeah. happen. <laughs> yeah, right, right. The, the deep state wasn't going to save you, and they're definitely not the good guys. Although, sure. Compared to, but, yeah, compared to the all, exactly. I mean, we're talking when you, yeah, <laughs> the good guys are very hard to find. Yeah, Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> are, are all of your conversations this sort of morbid, or is this no. like, yeah. <laughs> No, it's usually, I mean, the problem is, John, my trump card is usually like, just, just do some, you know, just go to the co-op and, yeah. and buy some organic vegetables. So when you were like, yeah, climate change has destroyed the organic <laughs> farms. I'm like, oh, wait, that's, yeah, oh, yeah, that's, yeah. that's totally my, my cheat card is, you know, community produced agriculture and goods and yeah. wares and and grains but... i mean granted granted they had established their farm on some of the most already barely arable mm -hmm. terrain imaginable you know i mean they were they were you know uh attempting to do something really difficult to begin with i mean and they should be able to do it but it is uh i don't think any of this negates like uh support your local organic farmer Good. Good. This is a this this is a this is a place where we can be on a bit of an upswing. Support support your local organic farmer. I think I think the only other thing about the book that uh, we didn't really talk about, um, although you mentioned we talked about denial, is just the absolute hypocrisy. Yeah, in every scene of these people who are living in this world, where they just like they are absolutely disgusted at the idea of eating meat. But they're like, yeah, chicken, that's fine, no problem. Like, they, <laughs> like this is, you know, again, like all of these movements, it's not a coherent. Totally, thing. it's it's messy and 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 difficult. And if you yeah. if you read one of these science fiction works where society has changed in the way that it's not messy and hypocritical and incoherent, you know, that's that's when you're in the realm of someone who hasn't hasn't done good thinking. Yeah, totally. Yeah, I mean, it's it's really uninteresting to me to read that kind of world building. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I think, yeah, I mean, it's, um, yeah, I, yeah, I don't have anything to add to that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I really, I really enjoyed the book, John. I, re I really did. It's given me a lot to think about this conversation. 
was bad um, and has <laughs> and has upset me. But uh, it was a I think it was a very informative and useful conversation, even if I now feel feel sad. Right. Um, Sorry to be. Let, let me know about the, if they get back on their feet, um, farm farming wise. <laughs> yeah. Like... Yeah. No. It's, I mean, that is a tragic thing. It's 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 truly horrible. Um, yeah. Sorry, yeah, I took it. I took it back there again. But you know, <laughs> yeah. but do what you do what you can. The pe the people in your life in your community who are making beautiful things and growing wonderful food, support them. Start there. Vote vote for the Democrats. Don't <laughs> don't fall in love with the FBI. I, yeah. think, I think these are all these are all good yeah. lessons. No, keep be yeah. Keep being extremely alert and and describing things to yourself accurately. I think that's really important. All right. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much. This was super Thanks. fun. Yeah. Thank you, John. Yeah. Bye-bye.